What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 40 of Dart Against Humanity. One of the most frustrating aspects of doing what I do at my advanced age in this space is realizing that I really don't have much time left, and I'm kind of in overtime as it is. I think I quit journalism between three and five times over the last five years and always ended up coming back for whatever reason. Uh, But now I'm about to be 44 come August. Uh, The last 12 months are the least that I've actually written versus being quoted in articles and helping other people with their articles and doing other things. So it's just getting to a point again where I'm trying to end up transitioning into the next phase of life or whatever this career path is. And I'm using air quotes again with career. And one of the things is my contemporaries who are kind of in the same space as I am, I can see them getting frustrated and feeling trapped and I know that feeling I know what they're going through uh Russ Bingston did an article that made perfect sense to me if I read if I if I read the headline saying that the Jordan 1 was the new Chuck Taylor and I understood what he meant by that without even reading the article again because I'm going to be turning 44 I remember when the Jordan 1 came out I remember how long the Jordan won. I remember how long it it existed. I remember when it fell off. And yes, the Jordan 1 did fall off. At first, it was this thing that everybody had to have. And it was super exclusive. And Nike had too many. So next thing you know, everybody had them after a while because they started selling them for lower prices. And then people didn't appreciate them anymore because, you know, Jordan moved on. He was wearing other sneakers. And the idea of retroing sneakers wasn't a thing until later. And when they first got retroed, it wasn't like everybody was on it yet. It took a while. Everybody seems to forget that things weren't always as they are. It took a while to get there. So I understood what he meant by the life of the Jordan 1. And now I can watch um, Enter the Spider-Verse and see Miles Morales rocking Jordan 1s. I could see uh, people who weren't alive when the Jordan 1 first came out and probably only saw them when the retroing was actually in vogue. And they rocked Jordan 1s and they don't have any idea of what happened with the Jordan 1 versus the Chuck Taylor, which they don't know shit about the Chuck Taylor the way we do. When I was a kid, we used to wear cloth and vinyl sneakers. And then we started getting into the leather sneakers. And the sneaker that was always the standard was the Chuck Taylor, because that's the sneaker that our dads and uncles used to have to play in or a PF flyer. So I totally understand what he meant. When he wrote that article, the headline, then I wrote the article and I knew it was going to be exhaustively researched and that he was going to make his point salient, um, Russ Bingston, and he did. 
But people had knee-jerk reactions to the title of the article to the point where Russ was just like, I don't even like posting anymore. And I just hate social media because everybody just just gangs up on something and goes crazy without even reading the fucking article. I totally understand that. But by that same token, I've seen cats like Gino um, Shorolini uh, write articles and pieces. And he's like, he doesn't understand, he doesn't know if he's actually making a dent or if he's going the right way, if he's gaining traction or not, he can't really gauge what's going on. I wrote an article a couple days ago. It was the 35th anniversary of Run DMC's debut album, uh, Run DMC self-titled. It did well. The numbers came back uh, pretty good. But the thing is, I was the only person that wrote an article. And it's not like I was in shock or surprised or dismayed that it happened because I knew that was going to happen. I was the only person that wrote an article five years ago for the 30th anniversary of it for Hip Hop Wired. So I knew what was going to be the deal. I know if you add five years to that, that no one's going to do it but me. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm writing about an album that came out 35 years ago. Who the fuck that's still in this space would write that article that isn't over the age of 45 or 50 and again I'm going to turn 44 in August I remember when that album came out I remember the buzz around it I remember that entire spring and summer of 1984 when rap and hip hop finally went super mainstream and entered like it captured the 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 zeitgeist you know not everybody can write that article or the people that could write the article or actually have jobs and do other things where they're not going to feel like they need to write that article in this space but it has a lot to do with the fact that i come from a particular era and generation I came up reading right on and black beat over my big sister and big brother's shoulder. Uh, I used to go to record stores with them locally. We had strawberries. The flagship strawberry store was in Boston. We had Skippy Whites. Uh, we had Newberry Comics, which opened and opened in 1978, used to go to. There was a record store locally called Looney Tunes uh, that opened, I believe, in 1979. I used to always... um go to there was a Nubian Notions uh, Dudley Square uh, there were several record stores that I would go to with my brother and sister or their friends and I would I could read so I would pick up albums recognize albums flip them over and read everything on the back I would memorize what people were carrying the equipment, what it was, not know what it was, but see it listed. Like right here, I have a Switch. This is a Switch album from 1978. On the back, it has pictures of all the band members Gregory Williams, keyboards, trumpet, and background vocals, Tommy DeBarge, bass, background vocals, Jody Sims, drums, percussion, and background vocals. And next to it is their zodiac signs. <laughs> the, um, 
keyboards, drums, lead and background vocals for Bobby DeBarge. You got Philip Ingram, percussion keyboards, lead and background vocals, Eddie Fluellen, keyboard string ensemble, trombone and background vocals. Then you look down at the bottom and it says production and creative direction of the Bully Brothers and you have guitars, Mike McGlory, Ronnie Vane and Lil David Potis, recording engineers, engineers. Art Stewart, Fred Ross, Bob Robitaille, um, R- Russ Tarana, Barney Perkins, Zoli Johnson, Mixing Engineers, Russ Tarana and the Bully Brothers, you have Mastering Engineer Jack Andrews. Now, this was a typical album cover, written by Greg Wright and Ronnie Van, arranged and produced by Greg Wright, written by Greg Wright and Ronnie Van, arranged and produced by Greg Wright, written and produced by Brenda and Michael B. Sutton, arranged by Kim Richmond, Michael B. Sutton, and Jermaine Jackson. Jermaine Jackson used to executive produce the early albums. Um, Somebody's Watching You, written and arranged by Jody Sims, produced by Jody Sims and the Bully Brothers. You know, we like the party. Come on. Written by Bobby DeBarge and Gregory Williams. Arranged by Gregory Williams. Produced by Gregory Williams and the Bully Brothers. I Want to Be Closer was written, arranged, and produced by Jermaine Jackson. I Want to Be With You, written and arranged by Bobby DeBarge. Produced by Bobby DeBarge and the Bully Brothers. They'll never be. Written and arranged by Bobby DeBarge. Produced by Bobby DeBarge and the Bully Brothers. These are, this is what I read just growing up normally, you know. Clear album produced by Dennis King and Clear. It got vocals. Isabel Coles, lead vocals on I Still Love You, background vocals. Yvette Flowers and Melanie Moore, background vocals. Keyboards. Terry Dolphin, Fender Rhodes, Clavinet, Grand Piano. Eric Robar, Mini Moog, Art Omni, Fender Rhodes, Clavinet. You know, I got Richard Lee does guitars, vo- percussions, and background vocals. Norman Durham, who does bass, lead vocals, background vocals, Fender Rhodes, clavinet, guitar, harpsichord, percussion, ARP Pro Soloist, ARP Omni, Paul Crutchfield, congas, percussion, background vocals, and Woody Cunningham, who does drums, lead vocals, background vocals, and percussion. God damn. Now, when you come from this era where, like, I got a Lakeside album next to me. Produced by Dick Griffey, Leon Silvers, and Lakeside. Executive producer Dick Griffey, Fred Alexander Jr. drums, Norman Beavers, keyboards, clavinet, synthesizer, and string ensemble. Marvin Gregg, bass, Fred Lewis, percussion, congas, timbales, and bass synthesizer. Theman McCain, bells. Thomas Shelby, vocals. Stephen Shockley, guitar, synthesizer, and clavinet. Otis Stokes, acoustic piano, clavinet, and synthesizer. Mark A. Wood Jr., bass and guitar, acoustic piano, and Fender Rhodes. All leading background vocals by T. Meyer, McLean, Thomas Shelby, Otis Stokes, and Mark A. Wood Jr. You got your recording mixing engineer. You have the credits on each, uh, each song, right? Now, this is something I grew up with. This is normal for me. But also... I was a kid who grew up reading any music magazine I could get my hands on. When I was a kid, I used to go to uh, Newberry Comics. They had a magazine called Boston Rock. I would read Boston Rock. But I also read back issues of things like Rolling Stone. Uh, I would read anthologies of old issues of Crawdaddy. I'd find Cream. There was Phonograph Record. Boston had a music magazine called Fusion. There was this magazine called Circus. 
uh, I would read art forum. So I had an idea of what critique was supposed to look like. And for the most part, I followed it. When I read something like um, Right On, I was kind of disappointed because Cynthia Horner's uh, objective wasn't necessarily to do critique of music it was to make you aware of it and kind of be a fan to black music because i i guess she felt that it was so scrutinized by everyone else that she just wanted to give it a a forum or a place even if there was an album that maybe wasn't that great in the reviews it would be like encouraging and that kind of bothered me as a kid because i'm like yo if the album sucks say it sucks so i wanted something a little more i guess even and heavy-handed maybe because that's kind of where my brain was so that's what I gravitated to and it's in these early years that you figure out who you are as a critic and as a writer and possibly as a journalist without knowing that I was one so right here I have a Raphael Cameron album from Sal Soul I think this is 1981 lead vocals Raphael Cameron tracks by Funk Deluxe which is Gerald LeBond bass, Tommy McConnell drums, Solomon Roberts Jr. guitar, Annie Balsiera lead guitar, Randy Muller, if you don't know that name, I feel so sorry for you, keyboards, percussion, flute, um, produced and arranged by Randy Muller for the Muller organization. Um, if you don't know the story of BT Express, then I. I don't know, man. You had Brass Construction and BT Express, which were like related bands that like kind of shared members and went back and forth. And they were like super important to the whole transition era of like when funk became more uh, digital and synthesized when we get to the boogie funk era. So we're coming out of the 70s into the early 80s. Uh, post disco era, so 81, 82, 83, 84. And then, like, past 84, a lot of bands that were like the funk bands started changing their sound more and more. And some of them got unfunky. Like, I, like me and Quest Love were going back and forth about, about Cool and the Gang. They had this three album stretch that, like, I hated them progressively more and more with each album, but they were more and more successful. But if you're an older writer who's from this era, who came up in the early days when the source really broke through in like 1990 and you see like this is the real uh beginnings of hip-hop journalism as we know it because the only people you had to go by pretty much were the older established um black music writers then you had the younger cats that actually embraced the newer styles of music. Because not everybody was really along for every kind of new uh, incarnation or iteration of black music. They just weren't. A lot of them were set in their ways. Rap was like the final frontier for a lot of them. New Jack Swing really made them thumb up their nose. Because it was like R&B but rapish. And they really were not feeling that with the young, the energy of the young folks. Some people were trying to just like, hey, I get it. As long as it's not rap all the way, I can rock with it. Um, but like funk 
funk turned off some people you know fusion jazz some people drew the line at fusion jazz which is fucking insane um some people older cats were just like they like their soul and their r&b a certain way they want their jazz a certain way they don't want their jazz becoming too avant-garde they don't want it crossing over into funk they don't want it becoming rockish uh they can maybe tolerate it if it goes into like brazilian jazz or something to that effect but everybody had drawn their lines in the sand and you read these articles you read these different writers and you figured out where you fell but the thing is that that's not necessarily the case nowadays because the things that we the way we were introduced to the music and the people that we read and the people that we emulated or the writers that we emulated or the music that we listened to which influenced the way we wrote isn't the same thing that is experienced by people that write today for the most part if you write today and you're uh, on the younger side of a journalist that means that you were pretty much influenced by people that you read online versus read in physical publications that's going to change the way you approach uh, journalism or writing or how you write because what you're passionate about is going to be different You didn't come up at a time where Rakim, KRS-One, Big Daddy Kane, Cool G Rap, MC Light, Queen Latifah, uh, Heavy D and the Boys. You know, those aren't, that's not your, that's, you heard about them. There are cats that like always had an iPod. And like the guy that got them into music was like their person was Little Wayne or fucking Lupe Fiasco. That's nuts to me, but I can't fault somebody from when they were born. That being the case, their introduction to music is different because there are no credits on an iPhone. You know, there are no credits in your iPod, you can't pull up liner notes. I'm going into my closet. That's me going into my closet, pulling shit out. Okay, this is a case. I'm throwing it on my bed. I'm opening it. This case holds a uh, hundred something cassettes. So I'm just gonna go through here. Oh, so kid and play too hype, right? Yeah, that's me opening a cassette. This is the original cassette of Kid and Play's Too Hype. Uh, produced by Herbie Lovebug and the Invincibles. 1988 Select Records. Now, I'm going to open up the J card. And there's no writing on the inside. <laughs> Just on the outside. Produced by Herbie Lovebug and the Invincibles. Engineered by Andre the Record Lord DeBorg and John Fig Ficarada. Um, recorded at Bayside Sound Recording Studios. This is the same studio that's listed as um, the studio that Kwame used in his album, The Boy Genius, which the anniversary was just yesterday, the 30th. Keyboards by Peter Paleo. Background vocals by The Real Jimmy Young and Kid. Additional background vocals by Artistic Mystic, Sherry, Sandra, Alicia, Troy, Albert, Stephen, and Nicole. 
mastered by Herbie Pump Powers at Frankfurt Wayne. If you don't know Frankfurt Wayne, I don't know what to tell you. Art direction and Amy Bennick. Cover concept, Amy and Play. Photographer, Warring Abbott. Makeup, Tony Marshall in the Kid to Play fan club. And you see the Idol Makers logo. And that is it. Select records. That's pretty much the entire liner notes. Again, this album is released in 1988. Alright? So, sometimes liner notes were just really sparse. When we get up into the 90s, where you had to list uh, samples after the Bismarcky case and shit like that, then, you know, it was like reading the back of a box of cereal. Perfect example. Third Base, the Cactus album. And the reason why I'm doing this is to show you that these are the influences. This is a generation of writers that this was their introduction to the music. So this J card is done the fuck up, small print. You have to read. You have MC Search's shout outs. And of course, you know all the people in this that are listed. And you want to know who the fuck the GYP posse is. You know, you've seen names. Lionel Martin, more people should be as dope as you. The KMD logo could never be you. Thanks for making us be us. Um, this the 30th anniversary of this album is coming up soon, relatively soon. The the Fort Green Mission Posse, Daddy O Delight, Wise, Tron, Stretch, the people call you search, the wise guys. Almost forgot L talking about Big L the Mac as we know him. The Kango crew in the lunchroom at the old MMA. The M the MNA uh class of eighty five. We run shit. JB's Vieira Posse, Latifa, Allison Williams, Don Juan Newkirk, Tim Westwood, Jackie Paul, Chuck Sutton and the Apollo Posse. Like then you like you see in Shamika Fort Green. KMD Sec. This is Prime Minister Pete Knight. Shoutouts. The Omnipotent One. Of course, God. Um, DJ Shubrock, GYP Posse, Otis and Ahmed. You know, you're just going Ice and Coco. It's like Eric Vietnam Sadler, Keith Shockley. You just go through this entire list of shoutouts. Say Adams, Steve O, Dave Gossett. And I remember reading these liner notes. And then going through the credits produced by Prime Minister Pete Nice for RIF Productions. You know, and the thing is that there were no sample sources back then. Um, produced by Sam Sepper for Sam I Am Productions and Pete Nice for RIF. Edited by Steve Ett. Produced by Sam Sepper for Sam I Am. Produced by Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, and Eric Vietnam Sadler. Co produced by Third Base, MC Search, and Pete Nice. And like this album also has some nice interludes. Art direction and design by Drawing Board Graphics, Howard Zucker. Logo design by Say Adams. Say City, for those who don't know. Step Into the AM, produced by Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, and Eric Vietnam Sadler. Co-produced by Third Base, MC Search, and um, Pete Nice for RAF Productions. Recorded and mixed at Green Street Studios, which is a studio that like I feel like Pete Rock and CL Smooth kind of um, also helped to bring to the forefront for uh, younger kids, even though this album was released in 1989, I think um, Pete Rock and CL Smooth kind of used it between 91 and 92 for the first time on um, the All Sold Out EP and then on um, Mechanist Soul Brother. 
But the thing is that this was our introduction. I have a tribe called Quest, low in theory, right above Midnight Marauders. My God, I'm lucky to still type on this so I can still read this cassette. I'm unwrapping the J card. There are lyrics in here. No, they're not. It just looks like it because the print is so fucking small. Jesus Christ, is a letter. It's funny. I know I'm getting old, but I can still read these. Award tour contains a sample of We Getting Down, written and performed by Weldon Irvine, courtesy of Meddler Music, administered by Unichapel Music, BMI, and BMG Music. Like, cats would get these tapes and they would go straight to the liner notes and the album credits. Keep it rolling, written by Suck a Nigga, written by 8 Million Stories, written by. And they're just trying to look at the small print to figure out, oh my god, contained samples of Who's Gonna Take the Weight, written by. Bell, Bell, Mickin, Smith. And they're like, what the hell song is that? But also the thing is that those those of you that know, back in the days, cats used to just take a Tribe Called Quest uh, tapes or CDs later, and they would just take drums and just sample straight off the fucking album. Uh, it became more pronounced when Dilla started doing production because Dilla would leave, sometimes just leave shit open and people would just snatch Dilla's drums straight from the fucking tape, the CD, which is insane, but it happened. But I do this to show you this was our entry point. So when we read the source or we read rap pages, those are the things that influenced us when we did our writing or our research or our journalism because of the way the music sounded because of the way the music was presented to us the way that we interacted with it we had to record off the radio or uh keep a tape in the vcr to record off rap city or yom tv raps or um pump it up or whatever show came on so we would have it because rap a lot of times was uh relegated to certain times usually at night so to get home at three o'clock when rap city came on and it's like oh shit i'm gonna be here for um yom tv raps and rap city we're gonna switch back and forth because yom tv raps is only 30 minutes then we get to rap city and now i'm gonna start recording these and i'm gonna start recording off the radio and boston we had a uh, wnbr the dope jam show uh we had 88 9 at night we had another show, uh, there was the Street Beat show that was on um, Harvard, but then somebody else took it over and they had another show later. We had all these different shows to go back and forth from, and then if we were lucky, we had friends who were in New, in, either in Connecticut or New York who would dub and record parts of shows, and then we would swap with them, or they would dub a copy and send it to us, or I would have a song nobody else had yet. Like, I recorded um, Slick Ricks, I shouldn't have done it. And everybody's like, yo, you got that already? You know, yo, how'd you get that? Or I would go out and buy a tape nobody else had. And then I would like dub it for them for $2. You just had to hustle. But you would like, kids would just like share an issue with a source. Because 
the reporting and the writing on rap music or hip hop was so it was something that we needed the same way that like kids who listen to genres of music that everybody else wasn't really up on the same reason punk kids created fanzines so as a writer we had those early journalists who were in the source mind squad who uh worked at uh rap pages who set the standard for journalism and the aesthetic for what we wanted to read and then later how we wrote that's not necessarily the case now because there's a whole new generation of people with a different uh, wave of influences and I understood that when I would go to all um, hip hop and everybody on the all hip hop boards um, would be talking about something that uh, uh, Byron Bull Crawford wrote on XXL.com or Billy X Sunday. And they had a completely different approach to writing. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that we had moved more to an internet space. And um, the writing had to capture people. So they were kind of flipping the uh, standard that was set by maybe Vice. If you um, have ever read Vice's Do's and Don'ts, 10 Years of Vice Magazine Street Fashion Critiques, and you read the captions, that was kind of the way to like get people to read and draw people in. And... There was a time when it was like, just like how punk basically um, flipped rock on its head because rock had gotten to a point where it was art, 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 art. Um, it's gotten kind of pretentious where everybody's trying to do these long art pieces and do these three minute solos and everybody's wearing these costumes and we're trying to make the album that's going to make the critics go crazy and appeal to radio where punk was just like fuck all that we're just gonna play these chords do this do this do this and this is what we're going to do so in a sense i feel like that happened and those of us who thought we would never be those gatekeepers and those entrenched people realize, oh, this is how it feels. Now we feel old. Now these kids are coming up and fucking up everything that we built. And I had to stop myself and realize, oh, I get it. Rather than be the old angry person shaking my fist at, the, uh, at a cloud, I have to realize where my value lies and what I can do so one of those things is I don't necessarily need to write everything here I don't need to inject myself everywhere I don't need to give my uh, position or my opinion on everything because it's not really necessary you know what I'm saying like there comes a time where you were the person that used to always go to the uh, to the basketball court, and you would run 
And you'd run foes and you run foes. And it gets to be a point where there's a new generation of people who own the court. Let it happen. Coach. Instruct those kids. Don't just scream at them because they're not setting screens or they're not following through. Teach them. Instruct them. And that's it took me a it took me a while to realize that rather than be the bitter old person that that's where my services would better be served or that's what I should be doing instead or that's a better way to expend my energy. So while it feels frustrating, ultimately, you just have to, you know, you just have to go through that adjustment and do the work and realize you can still do certain things, but just don't feel that you are going to have to sustain yourself here. You can go somewhere else and do something different adjacent to it. And if you have something to write or something that you feel is necessary, you know, write it just like I did the Run DMC piece. And just like I'll do some more pieces in April. And then I'll do more in May and June because 1984 is 35 years ago and 1979 is 40 years ago. And I feel in 1989, 30 years ago. And I feel like there are a whole bunch of opportunities for me to write articles about those things in 1994, 25 years. I don't feel I'm going to do a 1999 piece um, near the end of the year, maybe in October, but I don't feel the need to inject myself everywhere because I don't have to write about the new hot album. Like, I don't want to be the guy who gets called in to go to revolt or complex and be on camera and talk about things happening with the young rappers because quite frankly I don't I don't really I don't I have no idea what the hell's going on with them and it's again because I'm old and it's funny because a lot of people tell me it's like why do you keep saying your age I think it's important because there are a lot of people that want to remain relevant and they never say their age and they never talk about how old they are because they feel that saying it kind of invalidates them in the eyes of the people who everybody pays attention to or listens to in a space. No, absolutely not. But also, I have to keep in mind that my importance or what I do isn't based on their validation versus these people it is. My interests are outside of that space. And that's why I'll go on Twitter and I'll talk about funk between 1979 and 1984 or the um evolution of black music between 1984 to 1988. Because that's something that interests me far more. Or maybe I'll just discuss like rap history stuff. Because once we get to a certain point, I'm not saying everything sucks because I hate that everything automatically starts sucking. No, it's just that things got different. 
and my interest shifted to another space. Like I went straight to underground and independent rap or others, other forms of music as opposed to what was the prevailing thing that was mainstream. And I mean, for that, by that same token, there are kids that grew up, younger people that grew up, and that's their passion. And I like reading about it because the thing that makes you want to write and, um, and makes you emotionally connect to it and hits you in the core, that's something everybody can relate to. Like, I love drill. I love drill music. Why? I'll sit down and listen to you talk about it. As long as you can explain it and you can tell me about it, because I'll watch documentaries about shit I know nothing about, but I'll come away learning something. That's the beauty of the written word and art to me is that it can convey things and make you feel things and you can share how you feel. With people that may not feel the exact same way. Last um, episode, I talked about how hard it is to try to sell yourself to people who may not care about that, which you're passionate about. But the thing is that it's worth it to try. Because at the end, somebody's going to come to you and be like, wow. I had no idea about any of the things that you were talking about before you began talking. But now I'm intrigued. And that's a skill and a talent that I think a lot of people forget that they have or overlook because they're so mired and just being disappointed or wondering how come they're not getting the engagement that they want or something's not growing at the exponential rate that they hoped so that they could monetize it, what have you. You cannot... uh, Skip steps. This takes time to happen. And if you're just trying to skip ahead, you're going to miss the journey. It's like a discussion I always have with people. Um, your experiences and your background typically... um explain how you feel about interacting with certain art and how you feel about it or how you relate to it. I once said that a lot of the younger generation, uh, I guess they're millennials and maybe Generation Z. That Again, I found out that millennials are much older than I initially thought they were because they've been miscategorized. I've mentioned that previously. Um, but The reason why a lot of them don't know what a classic really is, is because of how they've been, how music has been introduced to them their entire lives versus us who came up with full projects and albums and me, eight tracks, vinyl albums cassette tapes with an A and B side and sequencing being super important. When you have a CD player, sequencing doesn't really matter as much because you could just skip ahead if there's a song you don't like. A 16-track CD with 11 songs on it is a good CD because you could skip the songs you don't like. 
if you have to listen to that shit on cassette and you have to fast forward and flip it over and rewind, depending on where those five bad songs are, can absolutely destroy the experience. And it's hard to explain that to somebody who never, who doesn't understand that logic. If you had to listen to an album and you got to take the needle and skip a song or you have to live through a song on an eight track, it kills the entire experience. So it's really odd to try to make somebody understand that that factors into if an album is a classic or not. If you just let it play all the way through. And if you don't have certain type of standards or if you don't have a background to understand what the standards are for excellence because your standards are completely different because there's a whole different uh, aesthetic or idea of what's good to you. And that happens with film. You know, if you have a movie that's two hours long and you're like, yo, that movie was great. And I'm like, but didn't you say that there were about 30 minutes of the film that sucked? So if half an hour of a two hour movie is trash, that's an entire quarter of it. That's 25%. So that can't be a really good movie. And for me, it's the same thing with an album. If you have 12 songs on an album and three of those songs are absolute trash or four of those songs are absolute trash, that's not a great album. You can't have a nine-song album and like six songs and it be the album of the year. All eight of those nine songs and maybe like the ninth song has to be bad so you could just skip it entirely. And, you know, all these things come into play. But again, it has a lot to do with how we were um, introduced to music or art or what have you. Because not everybody's going to have the same set of standards or expectations. Some people just don't think about it like that. It's not a big deal. I like to think I want everything to be excellent or great. Everything can't be excellent or great, but I want for everything to aspire to be. But then sometimes there are just things that just come along and it's just like it's ex- it's disposable and it's just a money grab drives me insane. Some people don't. It doesn't bother them at all because for them, that's all they wanted. They just wanted an escape. They just wanted a diversion so they can spend money on it. And it's no big deal for me. If I spend money on it, I want to have it around like I just went to my closet and pulled out a big case full of cassettes that I've kept for mm, 30 plus years cassettes and that's just one case I have several more I have crates upon crates of CDs independent albums that I bought going back to the first CD I bought my own money was 1991 I believe it might have been um no 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 The first cassette tape I bought with my own money, my own money, 
1991. It was, um, I believe it was Edo G and the Bulldog's Life of a Kid in the Ghetto. The CDs, pretty much, I got from my um, older brother and sister. The first CDs we got, I think, were 1988. The first ones were... Um, my sister got Mr. Lee Get Busy because Hip House was really big at the time. Um, Kid and Play, Too Hype. Yes, I remember this. Um, mm, Big Daddy Kane. Big Daddy Kane's first album. Those were like 1989. I don't think Mr. Lee Get Busy was the first CD my sister bought. I just remember her going to get it and me just looking at her like, what? Like, you bought Mr. Lee? He was on Jive. Because, like, uh, at the time, they used to go to the clubs and hip house was really big. Get, 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 get busy. Get, 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 get busy. Chicago house. New Jersey house. Uh... Over in the UK. Uh, damn, what do we... Used to, it was just a big thing. College radio was just life. Without growing up in a space with like college radio that was so vibrant, I don't know if I'd be the music head I am. Because when I got into my teenage years... You know, when cats are just like dancing. And of course, I think I told the story on Twitter was like I realized like, yo, my dancing days were a wrap because I wasn't going to be dressing like Kwame wearing the flowy shirts. I, w- I couldn't get the dreads. I couldn't get the high top fade. I couldn't do the Gumby. I was not dying it blonde in the corner. I was not rocking the mailman shoes with the with the African medallions or the beads. I wasn't rocking travel foxes. I was like, I'm wearing these jeans. I'm wearing these Adidas. I'm wearing this hoodie. And people were like, yo, you can't get in a club like that. I was like, well, fuck the club. So my some of my friends was, you know, the smooth GQ dudes, you know, dressing like Kwame, you know, and like like little little businessmen damn near, you know, and the, and the zoot suits types, you know, dancing around and shit. Doing the, and the other thing was I couldn't do the contortionist bendy ass dancing that was happening in like hip hop slash house dancing because the house dancer and the hip hop dancer kind of became one in the same. Whereas before you had people that specialized in house dancing and then you had like the hip hop dancer. I was more the hip hop dancer. So when dudes started doing like the contortionist bendy moves, like if you've seen the video for baby, don't cry, uh, Layla Hathaway, that's kind of the standard for what the dancing was looking like at this time. If you look at how they're dressed, that's how cats were dressing. Cats were coming to school like that. You know, cats were coming to school dressed like Kwame, like 89, 90. And I was just like, nope, not doing that. But again, this whole trend, every era was a transition it went from this to this, to this, to this, to this, to this, to this, to this. And I have to always keep that in mind. So when things change over, I can't always get salty and pissed off. Are you fucking kidding me? I can't always get salty or pissed off that things change because they always change. And we always had to adapt and we always had to figure out the next thing to do. And we always had to do that. It's always been the case. It's not new. 
Just because it didn't go our way, we're going to cry about it. You know? Well, I don't really want to talk anymore, and they're vacuuming in the hallway. This doesn't happen when you do your podcast in the studio. Eh, anyways, one. <laughs>